some things that might be going on in our world today that might bring fear to us, what that might mean. So the first thing we need to look at is what is fear? And is fear good or is fear bad? Uh, Fear is generally a physiological response to some form of danger, perceived danger. It prepares our body, heightens our senses so that we can go through whatever that dangerous situation is and come out the other side still alive and well. That would be the good side of fear. The other side of fear would be in the sense that we are unprepared for a situation and have to make a quick decision without much thought or ability to prepare. And in that, a lot of times the enemy will give us a sense of fear that we just react as opposed to acting in some pre-thought-out way to some stimulus. But throughout the Bible, several times, it is a prevailing uh, theme. 470 different times in the New King James alone, we speak about fear. In 400 and different, 450 different verses. The over, our overwhelming theme is do not fear. And yet, the one good type of fear is to fear the Lord. And what does that mean? Do we fear our Heavenly Father? Are we to tremble, O mighty smiter, that will send down lightning on us if we do something wrong? Or do we, is there more to that term? Are we misunderstanding it? I have a Psalm 25, 12 through 14, if we take a look at that one. It says, Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall God teach in the way God chooses. He himself shall dwell in prosperity, and his descendants shall inherit the earth. Sounds good. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear God, and God will show them his covenant. That doesn't really explain much, but it says this is good. Okay, so fearing the Lord is good. In Psalm 111.10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom kind of interesting how does fearing god open us to wisdom and i think it's more in the meaning of that term is more not really translated well in the english it means more that knowing who god is what he's done for us through jesus christ and then what he has the ability to do if we fail to take that gift that jesus does remember jesus said do not fear the one who can kill the body but not the soul but the one who can cast the soul into everlasting darkness, that we decide to follow him out of gratefulness, and we have more fear in causing shame to come on the name of God through our actions than any consequence that could come from what we do. That would be the fear of the Lord. So what are some examples? Exodus 1, 21. We see that Pharaoh has told the Hebrew midwives that you shall kill all the male-born children mainly because he's scared to death that they'll rise up and overthrow them someday. It says, But the Hebrew midwives feared God more than the government of Egypt. And so they didn't listen. In fact, they lied. And they said, "Ah, They give birth too quick. We don't make it in time, so we can't kill them. So two places, when the law comes, they violate it. They've lied, and they don't follow the law of the land. But this is known as graded absolutism. It's a moral hierarchy. And in a dilemma where we are conflicted by differing morals, the higher takes place. This isn't relativism. This isn't the ends just to by the means. This is 
we have a higher duty to save innocent life than we do to tell the truth to a lying, selfish dictator of a country that does not fear God. We go on. That leads to Exodus 14. One of those specific children that they are blessed for saving is Moses. Moses, in Exodus 14, will, through the power of God, part the Red Sea and lead his people to salvation from slavery and lead them through the desert to the Promised Land, which would not have happened had they not feared God more than the government. Another example is in 1 Samuel 17. We see David and Goliath. David, a five-foot-nothing shepherd, is against a man, professional soldier of God, who stands nine-foot-and-a-half some, and he's got a sword and a spear and all sorts of armor. He's come out and he's taunted the nation of Israel, who has been shaking in their armor for days and weeks. David, when he hears him specifically taunt the God of Israel, becomes infuriated. He says, I want to take this on. Now, an interesting point is that 1 Samuel is not entirely in chronological order. Just as Daniel is not in chronological order, what we don't get is that three years prior, Samuel has anointed Daniel or David to be king. So David, wanting to save the the honor of the name of God, not allow anything to come and tarnish that glory, trusting in the fact that he will become king one day, he can't die, He goes up, doesn't even take armor because it doesn't fit, and he walks out, and he picks up five smooth stones. This could be a sermon all of its own, five being in biblical numerology the number of grace. Smooth, they fly well, but grace, when it is received, is pretty smooth. It takes one shot with grace to incapacitate the giant, but David, uh, David doesn't stop there. David does not allow that thing which threatens the glory of God to get back up. He goes up, he takes that mighty sword that Goliath has, and the part we leave out in Sunday school is he then cuts the head off of the fear and the thing that is tarnishing the name of God. Another thing, probably the best example of this, is in Daniel chapter 3. This is the fiery furnace. We go to the plain of Dura, where Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has set up a 90-foot statue covered in gold. He has brought out the Babylonian band, and invited 300,000-ish of the Babylonian overkings, those who would oversee all of the aspects of the government. He says, when the band strikes up, you will bow to the image and worship it, or you'll be cast in the fiery furnace. It's your choice. So when the Babylonian band kicks up, 299,997 people bow to their knees, leaving Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing on the plain of Dura. When it's 100,000 to one, they are literally standing out. And somebody tells on them, and they are called to the principal's office, where the king says, "Uh, gentlemen, apparently you didn't understand. Now this in itself speaks to how highly they are esteemed in Babylon. You don't get second chances in Babylon. He says, gentlemen, uh, we're going to strike up the band again. And if you are willing, that's kind of condescending, Bow down and worship the statue. We'll let this go under the, under the bridge. Nothing will come to you. However, if you don't, and here's the kicker, what God can keep you from my hand, and you shall surely be cast in the fiery furnace. That statement right there is probably what saves their lives. 
The greatest statement of faith probably in the entire Bible is found in Daniel 3, 16 to 18. Their kicker that sets him off is found in 18, but we're going to start in 16. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, listing all three of them, says they were of one thought and one mind. They were all in agreement. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. To which he's probably thinking, true. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. Had they stopped there, they probably would have only been cast in the fiery furnace. However, they said, but if not, here's the profession of faith. If God chooses not to save us, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. In other words, God can save us, but even if he doesn't, he's no less God. That sets him off. He heats the furnace seven times. In fact, the people who cast them in fully clothed are killed. That in itself speaks to the urgency because normally people are stripped before they're thrown in and they walk around like they're in our parking lot. And when they come out, glory is given to God by Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, he makes a decree. Anybody who speaks against the God of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, their house shall be reduced to rubble. So the glory of God is reinstated. Fast forward to Daniel 6. Some sneaky satraps go to the king and they say, King, all of us are in accordance. This would include Daniel, who is among the top three. And they say, we think it's good for you to make a law and decree that no one shall pray to anyone but you for 30 days. This speaks highly of Daniel because this is the only way that they can tarnish his name is to go and put him against the king in the name of his God. The king says, up, oh, sounds good to me, stamp of approval. In Babylon, that can't be changed. Daniel more concerned with God being able to see him being faithful, does exactly what he has done forever, kicks open the doors so that man and God can see him, and bows five times to pray before God. In which case, he is cast into the lion's den. Now Daniel sleeps comfortably all night long. The king does not. And in the end, he comes out. Glory is again given to the God of the Jews. And those who sought to destroy him are cast with their entire family into the lion's den, where they are destroyed. Now, it should be interesting and should be noted that all four of them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, didn't make those decisions of faith in the moment. Their decisions of faith are found decades earlier in Daniel chapter 1 when they are given the food choice. And they set it in their heart and made the promise that they will serve the Lord their God above anyone. They lived that out. This danger and fear of death was not trumping their trust in God because they had set it in their heart already. But it should be also noted that they did not get saved from the test. It was through the test that their faith was refined and brought out. So just because we are sent to trials, just because bad things happen, does not mean God is any less God. It's just a chance for us to glorify Him as such. But how did they know to trust God? They believed that their scriptures, just like Abraham, trusted God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, that he would one day send a Messiah that would save them from any bad thing that they had ever done and save their people. And in that, they trusted the coming promises of God. They knew prophecy. Jesus himself gave kudos to those in the New Testament who knew prophecy. So, 
Why does the church today fear prophecy so much? The prophetic books, Revelation, Daniel, we, we hardly talk about them. I believe it's because we don't really know the purpose of prophecy. It's not so that we can go to the world and say, tomorrow this will happen. It's so that when we look back through history and we see these things happen, we see that the Bible is not just another holy book, but it is set apart. It is the true and inspired Word of God. When we see that, we then have faith in the Word and what it says. If we don't know prophecy, we don't know that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the only way that we know Jesus is the Messiah. He fulfilled those prophecies. So knowing prophecy is important because we can trust the book. The study of prophecy itself is known as eschatology. The purpose of eschatology is to lead us to trust in Jesus' sacrifice so that we can have a study of the Bible. And the true overarching study of the Bible is known as soteriology. That's the study of salvation. Because the entire Bible is about our salvation. That is the entire end point of the Bible. We grow closer to God, we see what He did, and we are saved. Other than that, it's a good book. So, let's look at what Jesus said. From His own words, He gives us some hints of what we might see if we live in days like this. He said, came to His disciples came to Him and said, Hey, tell us what's going to happen at the end of the age. And the last days are kicked off, we know, when Jesus is resurrected. That's where the last days start. That's why all of the, the New Testament, the disciples are going, repent, the time of God is near, because that's where the last days start, or the end times. But what did Jesus say would come? We have to look at Matthew 24. The first thing he lists is there will be wars and rumors of wars. But when he starts off this fear-ridden list, he says, but do not be troubled when you see these things, for they have to happen, and I've told you ahead of time. Then he goes on, nation against nation. That's not exactly what he said, though. The Greek word he used is ethnos versus ethnos. That means ethnic group will war against ethnic group, or we will have racial tensions. Then he goes on to kingdom versus kingdom. That is politic versus politic. That would be your national state versus your national state. Then he says famine, continues with pestilence. Thankfully, we have not seen any of that recently. Then he goes on to earthquakes in various places. The word various is the key point. It's not that uh, we see earthquakes where we always see earthquakes. The word various indicates the fact that we will see earthquakes where we don't normally see earthquakes. It'll be out of the norm. Then he lists this as the beginning of sorrows. Most of these are all about the tribulation period. Things that we, as the believers in Christ, will not see. For we are not appointed to wrath, but to the salvation. He, appoint, he appears beforehand and appoints us to be able to go away from these. But if we can see these things coming, we should then know how much closer it is. He continues, tribulation and death. He's speaking specifically about the tribulation saints. Us, in the church age, this is known as the dispensation of grace. We get to live for Christ. Now there are martyrs, and our brothers and sisters are being persecuted around the world and are dying. But as a whole, we get to live for Christ. During the tribulation period, those saints will have to die for Christ. And the Bible is very specific. They will be beheaded for their faith. He continues, lawlessness will abound. And he gives us the reason. Not because laws are bad, not because we're uprival against bad government, but because 
the love of many grow cold. Nobody cares about anybody else. All we care about is ourselves. He says the word will be preached in all the world to all nations. Well, the key there, again, is nations. The word nation, again, is ethnos. It will be preached to all ethnic peoples. The abomination of desolation. He specifically says, as written by the prophet Daniel. So how can we forsake those books and still look at what Jesus taught? Essentially what he's saying is there will be a third temple in Jerusalem for the man known as the Antichrist to enter, declare himself God, and then sit on the throne. If that does not happen, then we have the wrong Jesus. We have the wrong Messiah. And this book is not what it claims to be. That is how important this list is. He says, unless the times are shortened, no flesh will survive. This is in specific, he's he's citing the Great Tribulation, which is the last three and a half years. He says, if I don't come back and stop it, it is of such horrific situation that no one would be alive. But he does come back. He talks about false prophets, great signs and wonders. This is probably the greatest threat to the church today. Because if we can get lost in false doctrine, what is written out throughout the rest of the New Testament as doctrines of demons, then we get strewn off the path and we aren't taken and we aren't saved because we're trusting in something other than Jesus. And I dare say that the prosperity gospel is up there with that. But then he gives us a key. He says there's one sign that will tell you that you've gone from the end times to the very last days, and that is the fig tree. When you see the fig tree bloom, you will know that summer is at hand. Well, when you see the fig tree bloom, fig tree bloom, you will know that the end is near, even at the door. He's speaking specifically about Isaiah 66, 8, which says, Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Now, if I want to emphasize something, I speak loudly, I put it in bold, caps, underline, I do something like that. However, if you're writing as an ancient Jew, you repeat yourself. So he's repeated himself once. Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? That's two repetitions back to back. In other words, what I'm about to say is of utter importance. Pay attention. For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. That prophecy came true on May 14, 1948, with the rebirth of the nation of Israel. Now that's, that's the New Testament. Let's take a look at an Old Testament prophecy that's even more specific of when it will happen. And that's Ezekiel 38. Ezekiel 38 is the only prophecy that I can think of that says near the end of the last days. So you should take your newspaper, your news, hold it against your Bible and see where this stacks up. It'll be a pretty good idea of where we are on the timeline. Keep in mind this was written 2,550 to 2,600 years ago, 580 years before the birth of Christ. And Ezekiel is the only priest that becomes a prophet. So when you hear these things, it's not like he was writing today. He says there's going to be an invasion into Israel and several key aspects have to happen specifically for that to happen. See if you're following the news, if any of these strike a bell. Israel as a nation must exist as a specific political subdivision gathering of the Jews. 
before that can happen, they must have been scattered throughout all the earth. And they must have been gone for a long time. We know that the scattering happened in 70 A.D. And they didn't come back until 1948. If my math is correct, that's 1,878 years. I think that's a long time. The land will have had to be devastated by war and be desolate. Mark Twain in the early 19th century walked through the the area of modern-day Israel and he said, there's nothing here. Nothing could grow. Jackals don't even want to live here. It's completely barren. He says that they must return from all the nations and they must return to one central new nation that is Israel. Today they are returning in numbers like an army and increasing. In 2020 and 2021, more people have returned to Israel from ancient Jewish lands, to the ancient Jewish land from where they are, and they are the only nation to be reborn a second time. More importantly, nearly 2,000 years later, they still had their religion, their language, their culture intact. Upon the return, the land must go from desolation to bring them wealth. They have agriculture. The nation of Israel, about the size of New Jersey, has seven different climate zones, and they can grow anything the world has. They have minerals. They are the most technologically advanced nation on the face of the earth, more so than us. In fact, when we sold them the F-35 stealth fighter, they said, just put enough electronics in it to get get it here. We're going to take it all out. Then they put theirs in it, and theirs is the most advanced version the world has seen. Even just a few years ago, Israel was the laughingstock of the Middle East, having no oil or natural gas, and now they are the superpower of such in the Middle East. That is highly important. One of the other things is that they will not believe in Jesus as their Messiah upon the return. Now, he doesn't specifically say Jesus because he doesn't know what his name will be. Interesting enough, he says that the political borders must encompass the mountains of Israel. May 14, 1948, they did not. The mountains of Israel did not come under the power and political subdivision of Israel until the 1967 war. And the most important part is they must be living in security and safety. Interestingly enough, all tier one nations, they either have peace with or... They are completely inept and unable to attack. We'll go over that in a little later. Now, the invasion itself has specific criteria. There's going to be specific nations. If we take Ezekiel's day, we take a map and we overlay it to today's map, the nations are not the same. But we do have a general overview of what those nations will be. It's not perfect, and there are five key ones, but we're going to look in even more detail. The first one listed is Rosh. That's modern-day Russia. Magog, modern-day Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, Kyrgyzstan, basically the Stan countries. Meshek, Tubal, Gomer, and Beth Togarma, those are all modern-day Turkey. Persia, which prior to the Ayatollah takeover is what Iran was called. And Kush, which is modern-day Sudan. And rounding it out is Ethiopia and Put, which is actually modern-day Libya. The big five, Russia, Iran, Turkey, Sudan, and Libya. Now this is going to be a surprise invasion that they are not ready for. With the invention of radar, how could people come from thousands of miles and invade Israel? And where is Syria and Lebanon on this list? They've they've been good at attacking Israel. Well, look at today. 
Syria is pretty much defunct as a nation. And Lebanon, their currency has devalued to the point that now they are paying 200 lira a head for donkeys because they can't afford gas. They found the ancient way of moving around to be the only affordable one. Jordan, they work with Israel. Saudi Arabia, they work with Israel. Egypt, they're fighting with Israel in the Sinai against ISIS. So he specifically says that none will border the nation of Israel. However, the current state of Syria is that Russia, Iran, Turkey, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Azerbaijan, many other nations of that order have troops in Syria. In fact, the main airbase, the T-4, is roughly 80 miles from the northern border of Israel, and Russian troops are patrolling the border with Israel at the Golan Heights for the first time in recorded history. It says that the reason of the invasion will be the wealth of Israel, and that the man Gog, who's a political leader of Russia, will be drawn in. It's called a hook. Will draw him in to the land of Israel to take their wealth. Well, Russia went to Syria looking for oil and natural gas and have yet to reap the rewards. God says when this happens, he himself will defend them. No other nation will defend Israel. No one will come to their aid. In fact, Gog and the other nations aren't so much as even worried that anybody will stand up to them. God uses his weapons. The lightning, we are told hail, and then an earthquake. An earthquake of such strength that every living creature on earth will feel it. The fog of war kicks in and the nations will then start attacking each other. They will all be utterly destroyed. And we are talking about an invasion that is described as blotting out the sun. So it's a whole lot of people coming at once. He continues, the homelands of those nations will be destroyed. Now if we look into that, that doesn't mean that Russia disappears, Iran disappears. He's speaking mainly of the military strength, command, and control. So those will also be gone. And Gog himself will die in the invasion. Post-war, what does it look like? Well, this is where we get our explanation of why God would allow this to happen. Post-war, specific nations will protest the invasion. They're listed as Sheba and Dedan. That's modern-day Syria, or modern-day Saudi Arabia, and the Arab Gulf states. I give you the Abrahamic Accords. Now, the only nation outside of that that might strike you in the Abraham Accords is that Sudan was part of that. Obviously, they'll break that according to God. And Tarshish. Tarshish is England. You can somewhat find the U.S. in there under the young lions of Tarshish. But that's a stretch. This is where the world starts to see God as protecting Israel and what turns Israel's eyes back to God. That's the point. Interestingly enough, 2,500 years ago, 2,600 years ago, they didn't have anything that would make you want to leave dead bodies lay around for a long period of time in their war. However, he specifically says that people will be appointed to go look for bodies and bones and mark them. Markers or flags will be used, and then they'll let them sit for seven months. Then other people will come and bury them. Modern day, we have weapons of war as to why we might see why they will lay there for seven months. But back then, it made no sense. If the Bible is correct, this invasion cannot be stopped. In fact, it will be a new modern-day Purim from the book of Esther. And this is the first Gog-Magog war, not to be confused with the one in the book of Revelation, which is at a whole different time and will happen again. 
Now speaking of the book of Revelation, the other prophetic book, that is probably the number one book that the church has ran away from. I think there's a good reason. It is the only book of the 66 books of the Bible that has a specific blessing if you read, listen, or study it. We are foregoing that blessing in the church because we ignore it. The book of Revelation is not there to scare us, but to prepare us. It is there to show us our mission, which is the Great Commission. We are not to look at the book of Revelation, shake in fear, and go, well, I don't want to read about all this bad stuff. It's there so that we go, I don't want my children, my parents, my friends, my countrymen, or my fellow man to have to go through that, and to motivate us to actually get up, go out, and tell people about Jesus and how they can be saved and not go through such a thing. The gospel that will separate those who get to go away before all this happens is very simple. It is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He came, lived on the earth as 100% man, 100% God. He then lived a sinless life. He died the worst death man has ever seen and rose again three days later from the grave. He ascended to heaven where he sits to make intercession for each one of us if we choose to accept that gift. Now, some places will say, oh, if you prayed this prayer, you wrote this in the back of your Bible, you came forward, you're saved, you're good. Except the Bible is a little bit more specific. The Bible says if you profess God but you have no grievance of doing sin, you're not saved. You are still at risk. You can't go, I profess Jesus, and then go out and live the way you had been living before and think that Jesus has changed your heart. The key to a biblical salvation is a change. Not that we stop sinning, but when we sin, we fear that sin will separate us from God and cost Him things. And thus, we repent, return from it again, and try to do our best. He does not expect perfection. He only expects that we would choose Him and try and do our best to glorify Him. So when we look around and we see news reports of this and that and riots and lawlessness and people going in bands, shooting off guns and all of that, things are not falling apart. Things are falling into place. If you think they're falling apart, you're reading the newspaper and watching the news as your central central basis. But if you're reading your Bible and then confirming it with your newspaper and your news, then what you're seeing is your world is falling into place. Your Bible is still 100% correct. Jesus is still on the throne and very shortly is coming back to get us. Anybody that might be watching online that has more questions can contact the church office. We have people who can lead you through that. And if you're not from around here, then find a church near you that actually preaches the gospel. And with that, since it's all hot here, we will say our final prayer, go to our song. So bow our heads. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for us being able to take your word, to find confidence in what's going on in the world. You told us ahead of time these days were coming. In fact, these are the days that the prophets longed to see. More prophetic events are taking place today in our lifetime, than at any time in the Bible, except when Jesus himself walked the earth. Father, let us not be blinded with fear.
Let us not be blinded by words of man, but guided by your word, that we would find salvation in Jesus Christ, that we would take that light to the world, and that there were to be a pouring out of the Holy Spirit as never before seen in human history, that more would be saved and not have to go through the wickedness to come. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name, I pray. Amen. And now we go to our last song.